0: Angela Zarian, welcome to the new school.
1: My honor. Thank you.
0: Such a joy to have you here. There's so many places I could start, but I'll start with a a brief uh, introduction. Uh, You are a cultural anthropologist, award-winning author, educator, and consultant to many organizations and businesses. You lecture and conduct workshops worldwide, bridging cultural anthropology, psychology, and comparative religions. Your work is used in medical, academic, and corporate environments. You are the president of the Foundation for Cross-Cultural Education and Research. Your books have been translated into 13 languages. You've received three honorary doctorates. And your books include The Fourfold Way, Walking the Paths, of the warrior, teacher, healer, and visionary. Signs of Life, The Five Universal Shapes and How to Use Them, which was the winner of the 1993 Benjamin Franklin Award. The Second Half of Life, Opening the Eight Gates of Wisdom, which is a very beautifully, beautifully produced book. Um, And... Your recent book, Living in Gratitude A Journey That Will Change Your Life which I love I love all these books and um, then finally a book that I just love called (laughs) The Tarot Handbook Practical Applications of Ancient Visual Symbols Um, and um, I've read your work through the years but the wonderful thing about having this conversation is that I've been sitting and reading intensively in, in all Poor four thing. of these, <laughs> and um, it's such a gift uh, to be able to to do that. Um, so our intention today to share it uh, with all our friends who are here is to use uh, the framework of your life journey to talk about the principle. Influences or openings that have come to you, that brought you to this work. Um, and I, I think I'd like to start just with one of your best-known pieces of work, The Fourfold Way, Walking the Paths of the Warrior, Teacher, Healer, and Visionary. How did you come to that piece of work?
1: Oh, my. Um, basically, each one the biggest surprise in my whole life well there are two big surprises in my whole life Um, one is that I'm not married and have five children that was a big surprise Um, some invisible hand orchestrated something else and the second surprise is that I ever wrote a book it was never in my imagination it was not in my consciousness in any way and the first book uh, that I wrote uh, came out of a, a deep love um, that's deeply connected to my ancestry, which is um, uh, I have five generations, and coming from an immigrant family, um, five generations of Basque heritage, and the... And for those who aren't aware of um, the Basque culture, um, it's located in the Pyrenees Mountains between France and Spain. And everyone thinks, well, um, Basque must be an integration or a combination of um, Spanish and French. But Basque is not an Indo-European language uh, at all and linguists still to this day do not know the derivation of uh, the Basque language. But if you ask old Basque people who are in their 90s and I'm in my 70s so uh, but the old ways or the old people, the ancient ones will tell you that Uh, where the bass came from and there are two origin myths and one is that there was a beautiful mermaid that would swim only in the lighted waters of the sun and the sun noticed this beautiful mermaid swimming in the light only in its light and would always follow its light even into darkness and then would follow the light of the moon Uh, But the sun finally fell in love with this dutiful mermaid that would swim only in its light, and he stuck out his tongue, which was a beautiful rainbow, and pulled her up to him, and then he spit her back out, and she became a huge shooting star that grew and grew to become the moon. And at twilight, you see neither the sun nor the moon, but you see their children, which are the stars. And that's how the Basques were born. And uh, Uscati which is the seven vast provinces of Spain, four of which are on the Spanish side and three of which are on the French side, uh, Uscati means people from the sun, people from the sun uh, or people from the light and and uh, also that the light brings the stars bring light into darkness and that's also considered, me- much like Native American people, that the star people are really our ancestral home that when you die that 's when you go you go back uh, and then the other myth is um uh, earth centered myth about a seven headed dragon that was asleep in the very center of the earth and each of the seven heads began to awaken and as they awakened then they popped through the earth's crust and then when they popped through the earth's crust then the jaws of the seven headed dragon opened and there was fire that purified all the land and then after the fire stopped coming out of the, the seven headed dragon then out came the Basque, who came into the seven provinces in in the Pyrenees, and so that's the other origin myth. And my great, both of my great grandfathers and my grandfathers were both uh, whalers, and uh, and my father, uh, and also on my mother's side. Um, uh, her family uh, was in o- Ondarua and and my family uh, on her side were also uh, whalers and fishermen, and uh, and the Bass people have been known uh, for whaling, and 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 also have been uh, known for generating free enterprise because they've used the waterways for centuries, and were here long before uh, Columbus. They even uh, have traded a lot with the Native Americans. And so being raised by culturally the largest Basque community outside of... uh, uh, in America, there are actually... uh, the largest is in Boise, Idaho. And, And my... Uh, father did not get his American citizenship until I was 14, and we would uh, uh, I had family in Spain and family here, and was literally raised biculturally. And so it's it's that experience of being raised biculturally that really got me very much interested in taking a look at. At a very early age, what were the points of unity uh, between all cultures? Because uh, in, sp- in Spanish, for how are you, you can say, Como está usted? In French, you can say, Como And in Basque, you say, Selin Savis. And so it's not an Indo European language. Linguists still don't know where it's come from. Um, Basque people believe that uh, it's uh, the language that the devil can't understand. <laughs> <laughs> and therefore, we can't really be too tempted. Uh, 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 so that's a lot of the folklore. And so I can remember at seven years old, uh, lining up at the time when I was seven in this country, uh, in Idaho, they had what are called storybook dolls. And storybook dolls were like a Native American doll and then there was a little story book behind it. And then there was an African doll and then there was a Japanese doll and there was a Chinese doll and and there was a flamenco dancer and there was a an, uh, a princess from uh, England, I think it was. I had I can remember I had those. And I would line them up at the end of my bed and I would g- give them all different little languages and they would all talk to each other. And uh, so little did I know that that little ritual was a, later a preparation for really my interest in cultural anthropology, although at that time I had no idea what cultural anthropology was. And in, didn't I went to the University of Idaho and majored in English and... Drama and psychology and history were my minors, and languages, and so I had decided after I graduated that you know I would go back to Spain and and visit family, and I visited family, and I was sitting on the uh, steps of lost in thought, lost in thought at the Sabon, and and uh, uh, just sitting there because uh, I was taking some painting classes and this young man came up to me and I, he said, you're really lost in thought. What are you thinking about? <laughs> and I thought, oh, this is, a, this is a rich come on at the time. I was 28 and I said well, you know, I wasn't really thinking about anything and, you know, have a nice day and all this. And he said, no, I'm really serious. I am really serious. You are really lost in thought. And I said, well, if you must know what I was thinking, I was thinking if I was to go back to graduate school of any kind, that what I'd really love to do, otherwise I'm not going to do it. It's just not worth going back to To school, unless it's experiential and unless it's relevant to life, you know, because I just, it just doesn't have any interest. And he said to me, he said, uh, Well, what is it? Uh, He said, What would you, what were you thinking? Because you were really lost in thought. And I said, Well, if you must know, I was thinking that if I did go back to school, I'd want to study music and art and. Uh, be able to travel internationally, and uh, that would be psychology and philosophy and religion, and all of that into one place. And but I don't think there's anything like that. And this was back in the late '60s. And he he reached in his backpack and he says, "Oh, I know what that is." And I said, "You do?" And he said, "Yeah." And he went through this brochure and at the time it was the UC Berkeley catalog <laughs> and he said here here it's cultural anthropology he's he said it's not the digs it's not archaeology it's cultural anthropology see it's the study of cultures and it includes philosophy and re- and psychology and religion and music and art see see and i said you have to be kidding and he said no he said see see here it is And so uh, I looked at it, and I read it, and then there was something that said medical anthropology and social anthropology, but I thought, well, that would be interesting too, the healing. I was interested in healing, but I thought, oh, I could do that in some other way. And uh, so he said, here, you have it. And he said, have a nice day. (laughs) <laughs> have a nice day and then that fall I enrolled at UC Berkeley to study cultural anthropology and in cultural anthropology what happened the biggest influence for me was um, Alan Dundas who was the professor of, of um, he was a professor of anthropology and he was uh, a well-known um, uh, he was, had a Kroeber chair at UC Berkeley, but his specialty was in folklore. And I thought, oh, how wonderful, because I would be able to study myths and symbols and folklore from all the different cultures of the world, and I thought this would just be wonderful. And so I did this um, paper on the psychology of superstition, and it was during a summer institute when Margaret Mead um, had come out to UC Berkeley. Uh, and uh, I took her uh, three week institute, and she, and I gave this uh, talk on. The psychology of superstition and its relationship to mysticism because one of the things um, in my own Basque roots is that there's a deep connection to nature and that's one of the reasons why I've spent 40 years taking people out to nature for three day three night wilderness experiences because there's a deep connection in and my own uh, upbringing of Basque mysticism that is deeply connected to land and connected to water and connected to the elements. And, and so um, I just I gave this paper on the psychology of, of superstition and its relationship to mysticism. And Margaret Mead uh, said, you must talk to my husband, Gregory Bateson, and who was at that time down at Esalen, uh, and he was a big nature and systems theory person and so on. And at this time, I was um, probably 31 or 32, and it was also the time that Joseph Campbell um, was having invitational um, seminars, which I also attended for three years. And Joseph Campbell, well, first of all, Margaret Margaret Mead said, you know, you should really do something that's deeply connected uh, uh, to your mystical roots and to what you've done with superstition because what you've found is what you're really exploring is something that is is really... Uh, important in every culture, and uh, instead of superstition, it's a doorway to deep spirituality that is experienced cross culturally beyond different religions. I didn't understand that at that time. I thought, okay. Uh, and uh, <laughs> then it was through Joseph Campbell who gave a lecture on Tarot. Uh, at one of these uh, courses uh, and I was very interested uh, what came out of my paper on on the psychology of of um, superstition and um, uh, mysticism is that I was always interested in symbols and also in cards because there are two. Basque games uh, card games that I've been deeply influenced by one is called Moose uh, and probably its closest relationship is in this culture to Pinochle and the other one is Brisca which its closest relationship would be a combination between poker and blackjack I think it is but anyway, it was... In, and I loved card games, and I would play um, casino with my uh, uh, father for hours. Uh, and, um, and I used to wonder about the suits, and I used to wonder about why there were such things as jacks and all of that. And then I decided that... Um, Uh, what I really wanted to do because in the mystical traditions all mystical uh, traditions uh, uh, especially the Christian, Judaic and Islamic traditions which were all unified uh, together in Spain outside of the Middle East is that Spain was a place where all those three traditions uh, braided together as well. And in the mystical traditions, there is a a deep um, study of story and myth and also the archetypal language and the symbolic language. And so when I was at Berkeley, they had this uh, uh, huge exhibit... And again, this was all in my early 30s. These were the big imprints. Uh, there was an exhibit on Egyptology, and Wallace Budge at that time was a huge um, um, Egyptologist, and, um, and he's the one that um, found that in ancient Egypt... Um, where they had dual uh, rulership that if you studied science, you studied its esoteric equivalent, which was symbols. And if you studied astronomy, you, you studied its esoteric um, uh, equivalent, which was astrology. And if you studied physics, you studied its esoteric equivalent, which was alchemy. And if you studied... Mathematics, you studied its esoteric equivalent, which was numerology. And so I was fascinated by that. And I went to see this exhibit at uh, UC Berkeley. And I was walking around and uh, was looking at this old book of ancient Egyptology and the petroglyphs. And um, what I thought was a bookmark. Fell out and uh, and I looked at it and I'd been studying all these symbols because I'd been working with um, myth and symbols as uh, for for my uh, graduate thesis on on folklore and um, and I thought oh I can... look at this you know there are Egyptian symbols on it there are Greek symbols on it and I knew all of those and there was uh, uh, old medieval symbols on it and I thought um, oh there was the Orphic egg the, the the egg wrapped with the serpent that's called the Orphic egg and I was going through all of this and I thought what an interesting bookmark and so I took it over to the librarian and uh I said, this is an interesting bookmark, but I don't know if it belongs into this old book or not. She said, oh, that isn't a bookmark. That's a tarot card. And she took it, and she ripped it in half and put it in the in the waste paper basket. <laughs> and so she went back to the stacks, and I thought... <laughs> so I went over, and I pulled out these pieces and it was into four pieces and I put it back together and it was the fool card the fool card from what we now know as the Thoe deck uh, or the Alistair Crawley deck and so then with this paper on the psychology of superstition what I did was make myself a subject to go have an astrology reading, to go have a numerology reading, to have my hands you know, read uh, uh, to have uh, a numerology reading and, and all of that to see, and they kept coming up with uh, different trends and uh, about my nature and all of that and I thought, well this is f- really quite interesting. And uh, and then, um, so it was from that point that I, I decided, well, I found that in reading, I wondered why Thoreau of all of the esoteric arts, had the most prejudice towards it. Uh, because it was a deep, symbolic map. And... Uh, And in the psyche, uh, we access uh, the symbolic language uh, is something that through it we hear or see symbols. If somebody's talking about those symbols and what they mean, it sets up a high suggestology uh, and imprint uh, for a self-fulfilling prophecy. Well, I thought, there's more to this. Uh, and so for from 30 until probably 45 years of age, all I did was read as much about, I, about symbols as I could. And because the symbolic language is the pre-verbal language and it is the language that... Uh, you find in poetry, you find in metaphor, is the language that connects our deepest interiority to the external experience, and uh, and symbols have different symbols surface in our dream life, in the night life, and in the waking dream, and uh, so I I not only read everything that I could about uh, Tarot as a map and found that originally it uh, surfaced out of China uh, that the king's concubines would make portraitures of their experience with the king was the first. and The second uh, place that Tarot really came was through Egypt as the Book of Tho was uh, they had two books, one for the Book of the Dead and one for the Book of the Living. And uh, the Book of the Living is what we now know as, as the, the Thoth deck or the Alistair Crowley deck was the Book of the Living. And then there was the Book of the Dead of, of how after you died, how you could travel through all the Bardo states And it was used as a book of wisdom, the book of Tho, how to to really live well, and it was all in petroglyphs or uh, 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 not petroglyphs, hieroglyphs, and um, so it's like Thoreau said, uh, you can if you want to know about what really has heart and meaning and about a person's life, and especially if they're a writer, look at what they've written. And all of my books have one thing in common. Every single book, I've written seven books. Uh, One I edited, uh, which is called Working Together. Um, Diversity is an Opportunity, where I decided to put together uh, the best articles that had ever been written about Diversity that showed it as an opportunity rather than as a problem. And uh, I found 17 different art articles, and Barrett Kohler uh, uh, put that together, and it had Gorbachev's article around diversity, and it also had Norman Lear's article around diversity as an opportunity, and this was before affirmative action and all of that in the late 90s and so I wanted one place where because I really felt that uh, given the holy privilege of having traveled to so many countries and so many indigenous cultures of the world and primarily I've done it's been a blessed some invisible hand has been at work because I could never have Dreamt the life that I've had, the holy privilege of of of, of living, and that what's motivated that has been really find points of unity, and symbols are a point of unity uh, in all cultures. Uh, symbols have have meaning, and uh, you <laughs> asked me. It's been a long detour here uh, that the. Um, Um, Fourfold Way. The Fourfold Way, uh, the first book that came was The Tarot. uh, And I wanted to reinstate uh, Tarot. uh,
0: Why don't we, since we're on Tarot and since we're kind of, and I love this, Mm -hmm. why don't we start with Tarot instead of The Fourfold Way? uh, Yes. Because there... (coughs) We had a personal experience. Well, I mean, yes, there's this wonderful story that I was telling Angie that she actually remembers somehow, that uh, almost 30 years ago, when Rachel, Naomi, Remen and I were just beginning to work together to start the Cancer help Program, she gave me a reading with you. Yes. And um, so... uh, uh, And it was a tarot reading, and it was wonderful. And I remembered... Uh, the card, which you say is the two of wands, wands, which which has deep meaning to me. It's a every morning almost. I take a walk and I walk on the mesa, and there's a place uh, in a pasture by the edge of the mesa that you can walk through, where you're standing looking out uh, from the cliff over the water at the boats and stuff like that, and. Um, so this this tarot card had a man standing on the edge of a hill looking out on a body of water and there were ships and so on. He had a, a staff in his hand. Yeah, and the world in the other hand. The world in the other hand. And so I've just always held that, that image for 30 years. So then this morning I was... Uh, Working with the the Tarot Handbook, and in the back, I found these instructions about how you're supposed to figure out what your life cards are. And it said, "Okay, take take your birth date, October 22nd, 1943, and add 10 plus 22 equals 32, and add add that to 1943, so you get whatever, and and then sum the number." and it summed up to 22. Yes. And then I looked in the little thing there, and it said, okay, your personality card is the fool, and your soul card is the the emperor. Emperor. So just taking this as an example, um, what does that
1: say to you? Okay. Well, the fool uh, is the highest card in the deck uh, is the place of no fear it's courage and um, it's um, it's the state of uh, following what has heart and meaning So as a personality uh, through your life uh, you would be somehow open to possibilities and the courage to, Begin or pioneer something completely new. That would be part of your destiny because your twenty-two adds up to four, which is the Emperor, and the Emperor is the highest card of the Pioneer or the Visionary or uh, the Leader. And you certainly have been a Pioneer and a Visionary and a Leader. And you certainly have spent a life uh, being open and possibilities and -hmm. and courageous and that the one card that you remembered from your reading would be the two of wands which is called dominion uh, knowing your domain and your domain is looking out over the water caring for the earth with the earth in your hand and the staff is a symbol of leadership that is for service Mm
0: -hmm. now all of this because One of the great teachings in spiritual life is to avoid all forms of inflation, which is a very important tool. And so it's important to emphasize here um, that, you know, Commonwealth is a very small community and it is a speck of dust in the great cosmos. Nonetheless, um, what's striking, just to take the example of my working this thing through, is those cards have meaning for me, you know? Yeah, they in other words, do. here's this little system that you take <laughs> your birth date, you add this up and do this and do that, and you come out with the you know, the fool and the emperor, mm-hmm. and then you have the two of wands, okay. which is a dominion thing. And so in my inner life, because these cards have meaning.
1: Yes.
0: So how do you think the universe works?
2: <laughs>
0: of I all the parts. You. Magic. I mean, how does it work? How does it show up this way? I mean, you. By, at the time you wrote this, yes. you had done 6,000 readings. Like I, the reading. I, I, I have done... So now you've probably done, what, 10,000 or something? Oh. Yeah.
1: Many more. Many more. Okay. Yeah, and, and I became absorbed you know uh, almost obsessed for a period of time in my life where I was doing everybody's birthdays and Mm -hmm. seeing and I went even in history you know it's like (laughs) Elizabeth Kubler-Ross you know I thought oh I wonder if if you know what her cards are well I added up her birthday and her her personality card was 13 the death card oh my goodness You add up 13 together, which is four, which is the emperor, which is the pioneer and the visionary like you, but you were 22, the fool, Mm -hmm. fool emperor. She was thirteen four, And so I thought, oh, my goodness. So then I started doing Gorbachev, and then (laughs) Gorbachev adds up to... He's one of the rare ones where it's 19, 10, and 1, and so uh, his personality is... Uh, 19, which is the sun, which is um, the dance of two on the green mountain of creativity and is the highest card for teamwork and collaboration, then you add 19 together and it gives you another card, which is 10, which is the wheel of fortune, turning people's lives in more fortunate positive directions through some force of creativity or some force of revolution because the wheel is a form of revolution. Ten adds up to one which is the magician which is the communicator It's through communication and his creativity and his collaboration was part of his destiny. So 1910s and ones the other people who are nineteen tens and ones everyone has a life purpose and a destiny, but nineteen tens and ones their birthdays when your birthday adds up to nineteen you ha- you add an extra card ten to make sure that you do it pierre uh, Madame Curie, and Pierre Curie uh, both were nineteen tens and ones, and uh, you know they both received uh, No Nobel prizes for their discovery of of radium.
0: Have you done Obama?
1: Uh, Obama is a zero four. Really? Same as you. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. So. (laughs) Yes, I have.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So let me ask you this: What are your cards?
1: Let's see. I'm a double five, which means my birthday adds up to over 22 and you have to take it to a single digit Mm -hmm. and that means that you want to specialize something in depth and uh, I'm the hierophant which is spiritual learnings and spiritual teachings and work through community teaching uh, teaching through community so I guess I'm exploring that (laughs) (laughs) expressing that so
0: What's interesting is that. Um, so the Tarot book was your first, your first major.
1: Yeah, it work. was my first yeah. work. Yeah. Yeah. And um, and it was the first way that I uh, could look at levels of consciousness because the suits uh, in Egypt uh, they looked at. Uh, swords as being the mental level of consciousness, and cups as being the emotional intelligence, and wands as the spiritual or intuitive intelligences, and then discs or whorls or pentacles, depending on what suit was the physical external world. And uh, that all the royalty cards were really, if you took the 16 royalty cards and laid them out, uh, they're, it's mastery. Uh, they're symbols of mastery, of mental, emotional, spiritual, and physical mastery or gifts that you have. But if you just took the 16 out, they're the king and queen or the prince and princess of each suit. or And they're... The king and queen would be older people in your life that you're learning from, and the prince and princess are people that your age and younger. So you could just take those 16, and it will tell you a map. It has a map about relationships and about collaboration and just those 16 cards. Then the ace through 10 of each suit is everything that you need to know uh, about ace through ten different beliefs, and most of our challenges in our, are through our beliefs or in the mind, which is swords. And then our emotional responses to that is cups, and then our gut or intuition uh, is wands, and then the physical. Then if that wasn't enough, is that the zero through 21 which are called the trump cards, If tells you all the universal experiences that you could possibly have. For example, the fool, which is your personality card, is the state of no fear or courage. And uh, courage literally means to stand by one's core to, or to stand by one's heart. And then the magician, which is everything we need to know about communication. The high priest is everything we need to know about self-trust and intuition. The empress is love with wisdom and compassion. The emperor is everything we need to know about leadership uh, and pioneering or vision. Uh, uh, the hierophant is all about spiritual learning, spiritual teaching, or walking the mystical path with practical feet. The lovers, everything that we need to know about relationship. And the lovers goes with all the 16 royalty cards to teach us about the art and craft of relationship or um, relationship serves to mirror back to parts of ourselves that are very easy uh, with those people that we resonate to and those that are difficult. And then the chariot is the major card of change. Uh, The eight card is the major uh, uh, principle of balance. Uh, The nine card is the principle of completion or skillful endings. The wheel of fortune is about possibilities and opportunities. Uh, The strength card is uh, passion for... Uh, all those things that we love uh, is if someone's in their strength it's they're in their self-sufficiency uh, then we have the hangman which is really breaking through patterns and is a major uh, symbol of freedom and liberation once we break through our limiting beliefs or patterns and then uh, the death card uh, which is learning about non-attachment or surrender and acceptance and release and letting go. And then the temperance card or equanimity, how to meet disturbance without disturbance or what's called art or coming into the art of artistry of who we are. Art really is many different pieces coming together to create a greater whole. And then we have... um, the devil card, which is the one symbol that's gone through more transformation than any other symbol in the deck. Before it was known as the devil, it was Bacchus or Pan, uh, uh, associated with joy and celebration, and there was a backlash to Pan, and, uh, and because Pan is one who lived it up, and, and the word lived if spelled backward, is devil. And so uh, it's an old-fashioned word for bedevilments or problems. And if we really take a look at the root word problem, is probe, uh, something to explore, uh, uh, to probe. And so the devil card is reminding us that what, what are the bedevilments that we have or our problems that need to be explored rather than uh, to be feared or... Uh, let go of him so it's wonderful because it's the Capricorn card and it's how to uh, apply mirth and practicality I often see it as the card to lighten up uh, and yet at the same time be practical and then once we move through our bedevilments we come into our own light or our self-trust which is the star card, uh, which is the major card of, of confidence. Wherever we have confidence in our life is where we experience trust or self-trust or respect. And then the moon card is work to be done, choices to be made, and and what comes out of the choices that we make. It's karma, uh, and some positive karmas or merits that we make and some negative. And then the 19 card is the sun card collaboration once we um, move through uh, 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 changing and realigning. Uh, uh, I skipped the, yeah, once we move through uh The 16 before the star is realigning with the authentic self before we can come home to our self-trust. And then we have the sun card, which is collaboration. And then the eon, which is known as judgment, is really good judgment. Um, uh, And probably the last judgment we ever make is really... uh, uh, the ability to look at the whole and compassion and then the universe, we come into the universe. Those are just the major trumps.
0: Yes, and you, uh, you loved the, the Alistair Crowley deck because it had all these, but what you really loved was the illustrations, that the, the yeah. woman who did the illustrations.
1: Yes, yeah, Lady
0: Frida Harris. Uh, Lady Frida, and you actually make a point of saying that you differed with Crowley's and esoteric interpretations, and that led you yes. to this universal reading yes. of the Tarot, yeah. which uh, was your own interpretation, yeah. bringing together all, all the studying it. that you did. You also speak of the Tarot as the Western equivalent of the I Ching.
1: Yes. And so. Um, as a book of wisdom. As a book of wisdom. Yeah. Yeah. And one reason that I wrote. Uh, the book is to put it back into its original state as a book of wisdom, so that people could work with it themselves and take it out of, of fortune telling or prophecy, where they it could be used as reused again as a, a book of wisdom.
0: Mm-hmm. So, one of the things that fascinates me about the Tarot or about the I Ching or about different astrological systems, whether it's Vedic astrology or Western astrology, yeah. you get you get a reading from the I Ching, or the, you get a reading from the Tarot, or from Vedic astrologers or uh, Western astrologers, and they all seem true.
1: Yes, that was my paper right. way back then. <laughs> they all seem true.
0: So the question to me is ultimately is it true because your birth date happened to make me, for example, a Libra in the Scorpio cusp with Libra rising and a Leo moon and then I read that and it seems true but suppose I'd had a totally different birth date and suppose I read something else. Would it have seemed equally true to me because it taps into universal symbols or do you believe which I suspect you may that uh, that these actually are specific to people. That, In other words, you wouldn't lay out the system of reading the tarot by birthday if you thought it was accident. So how do you reconcile the kind of, in a sense, empirical, th- rational theory of this, which is these are <laughs> profound symbols. These are profound symbols. They're applicable to all of us. And what happens is that you do a reading yeah. and it constellates whatever's going on for you around these profound symbols yeah. and it just makes sense because these symbols have power and you constellate around them or that the reading that you get from the Tarot or the Ching or the Western or Eastern astrology or whatever is actually... In some unbelievably mysterious way connected to the universe, and this is actually—I
1: probably would say yes to both. (laughs) Yes to both. (laughs) Yes to both. both. Uh, You know um, what? You know there's Jane English, who was a physicist. You know she. Came and did one of my Tarot classes years ago. I remember her. Yeah, yeah. and uh, she translated the Tao Te Ching, and so yeah. she was, and so she decided that she was wrestling with this as well. And she kept asking me the same question. I said, Well, why don't you see if it beats the laws of chance? Mm-hmm. You know, because if it does beat the laws of chance, then it's somehow there in the mystery and somehow connected with synchronicity. And she thought, great, you know, great. So she took it on, and then she wrote. finally wrote a paper about it because it does statistically beat the laws of chance from her paper. Mm-hmm. For me, it's not a question. You're right. For me... Um, I I guess I've seen too much evidence that something mysterious is working right. there. It's something that the 2 of wands why out of all of those 10 cards did that particular card resonate to you? Now
0: yeah, for 30 years. Yeah, for yeah.
1: Th- for 30 yeah. years. Uh you know, it had meaning and there's a mystery that's that's tied to silence and meaning and the deep archetypal level uh, within the human spirit that I don't think will ever be explained rationally. And is something that for me, um, because of the deep mystical experiences that I've had personally and also because of my conditioning, uh, that it remains a sacred ground or a mystery in some way. And for me, that's enough. Now, you,
0: you talk about walking the mystical path with practical feet.
1: Yes. And one of the because things... Because I'm uh, a terrible idealist, one practical of the, idealist.
0: Well, I am practical. I am practical.
1: <laughs> I am practical
0: nothing else. And one of the things that comes through in your books is um, is a really um, practical approach to teaching. Yes. So it isn't just... You could have written these books without the practice sections. You could have just written the book itself, but in, in most of your books,
1: in all, after, of, them.
0: In all of them, after the, <laughs> after the narrative yeah. thing, there are re- reflections, there are practices. Yeah. And you have this wonderful thing that you borrowed from somebody I don't remember, and you, you can help me with it, that reading gives you 10% of learning, reading and listening gives you X reading and listening and, you know, doing gives you more, uh, and teaching one gives you 85%, 90% of learning. How does that go? Do you remember those? Yeah, it's in um, yeah.
1: November, I think. It's from uh, Edgar. William uh, Glasner decided, he was an educator who decided that um, he would... Uh, Explore all the different ways that people learned. Uh, from across, he was the first to take a look at that from a cross-cultural perspective. I think it's October. Yes, here. And so he, uh, Edgar Dale, uh, was the first. Um, William Glasner found that Edgar Dale was the first to really take a look cross-culturally at how people learn. And what he found is 10% we learn from what we read, 10%. 20% from what we hear, 30% from what we see, 50% from what we see and hear, 70% 70% what we discuss with others. And I think it's so interesting, so much is coming up around dialogue and, and conversations with each other. We learn a lot through conversations with each other. 80% by what we experience personally. It's kinesthetic learning, hands-on, apprenticeships. Uh, uh, 80% by what we experience Ninety-five percent by what we teach to someone else. So I'm learning a lot because <laughs> yeah. and in medicine
0: they have that C yeah. one, do one, one, teach one. One, yeah. Uh, so and you know this this is an example of why I love doing these conversations because I looked at that and I thought, man, I've been doing this wrong for a really long time. You know, in other words, in the cancer help program, I've yeah. done You know, 28 years in a. 200 retreats or something. But so I could improve the methodology by which I do the teaching in the cancer health program by paying attention to this, by saying to myself, okay, how do we restructure this so that the learning has more of all these
1: elements in it? And you have a lot of it because a lot of your programs are experiential, so that's 80%. Right right 80% they, that's true
0: they have the experience Financial. and they do have the talking with each other yeah so. yeah so
1: that's 70% yeah, yeah. and then if there's peer peer they do have the actually it's peer not peer so teaching yes yeah, so but
0: they so don't do got,
1: one they don't they don't teach it oh they don't teach it and to that the would other be,
0: it would be very
1: interesting yeah, too. Th- that would <laughs> up yeah or the cancer patients sharing or teaching what they've learned to okay. others that come in then
0: also that, just thinking about how we do the new school. Yeah, I right. mean, you know, how could we expand the way we do the new school in ways that bring yes. more of these yeah. dimensions in? Yeah, So now maybe we can go back to, <laughs> to the, the, the fourfold fold way, walking the paths <laughs> of the warrior, teacher, healer, and visionary. And I think one of your, you know, one of the memes that I learned from Rachel Remen uh, Uh, which is a short version of of the meme that you describe here, is that spiritual life consists of showing up, paying attention, telling the truth, and not being attached to the outcome. And I've used that for years with people because it seems to me so true. But that is a condensation of these four paths of the warrior, teacher, healer, and visionary. And as I take it, one of your core points is that even if one has a principal identity with one of these four archetypes, what can each of us learn from the others? Yeah. In other words, how can one bring in?
1: Yeah.
0: Um, and I thought to myself, if we were just to take one of them, say the healer, for example, uh, let's talk a little bit about the, the archetype of, of the healer.
1: Okay. Before we go there... Yeah. Um,
0: or you can do it a different way.
1: Oh, no, 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 yeah. that's perfect. Yeah. No, that's that's really perfect, but I just wanted to yeah, set yeah. A, uh, a context uh, because The Fourfold Way came after the Tarot uh, right. book, and it was at a time where I was traveling internationally a lot and a time uh, where uh, I wanted to be able to honor... My own uh, Basque heritage, along with other indigenous uh, peoples of the world, because the Basques are considered to be the last of Cro-Magnon man, or um, uh, and they're the indigenous peoples of old, old Europe. And so I thought I wanted at that time I was, and that was in my early. mid-40s, I wanted uh, to take a look at were there four deep traditional ways that all cultures had in common? Uh, And what I found is that all cultures of the world have uh, laws of governance or leadership Uh, uh, there's not a culture in the world that doesn't have laws of governance or leadership and and warrior is an old fashioned term for leadership mm-hmm. and so that was the way of the warrior and I thought you know what what are the what are the best practices globally around governance and leadership and then that took me into the archetype of the of the warrior and then galvanized that then all cultures of the world have a a medical model, but what's very interesting: all cultures not only have a medical model, but they have a folk medicine model, or what we call an alternative medicine model. Every culture of the world has a double strand on the healer. You know that there's the traditional model of that culture, and then there's the folk medicine model, and they're and they're both equally uh, 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 together there, and then. All cultures of the world have uh, uh, a belief in a purpose or a calling, uh, a creative purpose. Human beings are really here for two purposes, to learn about love and to express love and to create or to serve or to contribute. Those are, And the way of the visionary, all cultures of the world have... Um, the creative arts, the performing arts, the martial arts, uh, ways of expressing or bringing beauty into the world through music, dance, storytelling, uh, and the arts. There's not a culture in the world uh, that doesn't do that. And the highest uh, healing force in the world uh, is love. And... um, um, And the way of the visionary is is our life vision or our life purpose or our life calling or our creative service or our contribution that we're going to make in the world. So that's the way of the visionary. And then all cultures of the world have uh, ways of transmitting values or ethics or uh, what's really important uh, culturally. And the way that's done is uh, through education. All cultures of the world have an educational model, whether it's a pr- apprenticeship model or whether it's a, a see, do, and follow model or whether it's uh, in groups. Uh, and that's the way of the teacher. And so then I I wanted to take a look at...
0: So let me just... Yeah, let sure. me Let me ask you a question there. Sure. I mean, this seems to me to be a very, to me, creative synthesis of of structures from many parts of the world. And I guess my question is, was there someone that you drew on who identified these four before you, which these are... One of the key points is that you're very aware that what you were teaching and describing is... What is called what Leibniz and Huxley called the perennial philosophy, Fies, the perennial yeah, wisdom, yeah. and so what you've done is to take what Leibniz and Huxley called the perennial wisdom and approached it from a deeply symbolic and archetypal yeah. point of view, yeah. more so than they did yeah. in many ways.
1: Yeah. Um, um, and at that time, Huxley and Houston Smith were great influences exactly in my life exactly. Yeah, um, but
0: had somebody pulled out warrior, teacher, healer, and visionary as a quadratic equation of uh, these symbols or was that your contribution?
1: That's
0: my Right. I thought so. And it's an extraordinary contribution because when you think about it I mean all really great contributions after they've been made it just makes perfect sense. You know the warrior, the teacher, the healer, the visionary. I mean the healer one would think. You know, the shamanic tradition, you know, as Michael Harner says, there are two things that are culturally invariant, the incest taboo and the shamanic tradition, in all the traditions around the world. But it would be harder and it would be harder to derive teacher and visionary and warrior as the other three. Mm -hmm. So it's, I just think it's an extraordinary reflection of all the time that you'd given to this transcultural perspective to have come to these four.
1: Really came out of a, a deep love for the perennial wisdoms. Yes. and Which are again braided in the mystical root.
0: And also, unlike uh, Huxley and unlike Leibniz, I mean, they were really not going back into indigenous wisdom either. For no, the most
1: part. no.
0: They were much more, um, you know, in the Western... Wisdom teachings, yeah.
1: And what I wanted to honor is to have a place that really, uh, at that time, uh, the one phrase from Einstein that really imprinted me was, we have forgotten what the ancients knew. We've forgotten what the ancients knew, and so I thought, what in my own culture there's an ancient knowing uh, at the Basque Root and I thought I don't want that ancient knowing to be lost and so I wanted to take a look at that's one reason for my foundation on cross-cultural education and research is I don't want the ancient wisdoms that are found in indigenous peoples or tribal peoples worldwide because there's a, a deep ancient knowing there that goes on through all time which is the perennial wisdoms or what Huxley called the perennial philosophy but that would be the if if I have a more time uh, that I want to do something I tried to do it in the living in gratitude with the taking 12 perennial wisdom themes for each month, uh, um, such as uh, The Gift of Grace. Grace is a perennial wisdom theme. Uh, Opening to Guidance and Wisdom is a perennial wisdom theme. Equanimity is a perennial wisdom theme. Uh, And so those are the two books along with the second half of life that I've tried to bring in the perennial wisdoms uh, in ways that could be remembered and applied and used in modern times. The one book that's influencing me right now a lot is uh, Willigus Jaeger's book, which is called Mysticism for Modern Times. And uh, uh, it's... uh, um, and it's captured my imagination, and I've 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 read Evelyn Underhill's book on mysticism once a decade since I was 30 years old, and I still learn from that book. But I, I'm wanting it's not as easily accessible, and I'm wanting before I leave, I would like to uh, do something that. Uh, is, is related to uh, mysticism uh, because I really feel that uh, uh, mis- any experience tied to mysticism is a unitive experience and we're in- interconnected deeply. And anyone who's had a unitive experience, whether it's through synchronicity or the ex- uh, a deeply... Spiritual experience has touched something um, profound. And so I wanted some of those profound ancient wisdoms to be lifted up so that they can be used or people can reflect or practice because I really believe that when reflection opens and contemplation opens, a gate to the mystery of who we are and then we practice and through action the combination of reflection practice and action equals change we can only count on two things in life our death and and change those are the two things we can count on
0: so one of the things that's striking about what you do in, and then I want to go to the gratitude book in the fourfold way um, is um, this is the place where you really bring the indigenous wisdom which is normally excluded from the western view of the perennial yeah. philosophy. That's right. You bring the indigenous yeah. in. And, that's and you I bring mind. that in because... Of my that ability. is your destiny yeah. as somebody who came out of this yeah. primordial Basque tradition. Yeah, right. um, you know, my wife, Cheryl Patton, um, uh, is a um, physical anthropologist by sort of uh, avocation. Yeah. And she, she uh, just came back from spending time in the Basque country in Spain looking... Uh, I think she had to leave, but looking... Um, Looking again at the uh, at the cave art.
1: And, oh, right. You know,
0: and so one of the things that happens when you go to the Basque country, if you go and look at the caves, which now some of them they believe are actually Neanderthal
1: uh, yeah, art as yeah. well
0: as yeah, Cro-Magnon, know, yeah. yeah, both. Um, and and so you have a sense of this incredibly powerful Basque community, which, as you say, isn't derived from the Latinate languages. And, but this incredibly powerful, industrious, intelligent, seagoing, adventuring, yeah. creating philosophers like Miguel de Unamuno, who yes. you, you quote. Um, and, uh, but going back in time to the earliest origins of yeah. humanity and potentially, although they've done genetic studies which do not tend to show that the Basques derive, as some people believe, entirely from the people who did that art in the caves. Yeah. I don't know if you've yeah, seen the, some of that.
1: Yeah, genetically also besides the um, Neanthro, Neanthro, I can't Neanderthal, use, yes, and <laughs> Cro-Magnon man is that uh, to the skull type right. studies. Uh, there also, there's. Uh, the oldest skull type coming out of uh, ancient Egypt, and with most Basques uh, who are 100% Basque, is that you'll find that they'll have a, um, a bump on the back of uh, of their head, like a lobe extended lobe, which I mm-hmm. I do, and then there's a a, a concave. A place at the top of the head where the birthmark never just um, the birth um, they mm-hmm. didn't come all back together uh-huh. again. So there's a little dent up here. That's quite a
0: story, right it, there. Yes, isn't
1: it? it is. So that explains my crazy wisdom, probably. But uh, <laughs> in many ways, but it's the old skull type.
0: That's um, like the ancient practice of
1: trepanation. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Do you know about
0: trepanation? Trepanation was when. Uh, there are old uh, traditions that in some places you find skulls with a neat circle incision where they actually did an incision to take off the top of the skull because it changed spiritual experience
1: oh yeah oh i didn't
0: i that. actually have a friend in england who became famous uh, for trepanating herself and making a film of it which became a A cult classic. I'll have to tell you about this again. Uh, In any case, there's a a history of of uh, taking the top off of a skull because it changed uh, consciousness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. uh, I didn't
1: even know that. That's a that's very cool. So, so out of old Egypt. So I think, well, that's so. What you're saying is that the
0: the skull type, if I heard you correctly, of the Basques is reminiscent of the skull type that came out of Egypt. Yeah, Mm -hmm.
1: ancient Egypt. yeah. Yeah.
0: So let's go uh, to the Living in Gratitude book, uh, which is so astonishing and and organized, as you said, so that you can do it as a uh, a course for the year uh, with uh, January being beginning anew uh, and uh, February, attend to the heart, March, compassionate service, April, mercy and atonement, May, the gift of grace, June, the power of equanimity, July, embracing nature, Um, and so on through the year. And then with each of these things, let's take July because we're in July. At the end of the discussion of it, um, you have this set of reflections and then practices and then review and integration. And one of the things that's particularly interesting to me. You work in quadrants a lot. I do. And, which, of course, Jung said was yeah, the yeah, full, yeah. fullness of things. And so, uh, you know, gratitude in the four quadrants of life. You look at gratitude in work, in relationship, in health, and in finances. Mm-hmm. So what's unusual there, I mean, work, relationships, and health would occur to most people. But to include finances is, is a bold move, epistemologically, <laughs> because, you know, that's the, the darkness that none of us want to talk about. Yes. In, in,
1: yes. But know. it's a reality. But it is a reality. <laughs>
0: yeah. yeah. Um, so, and, and this speaks to the way how seriously, and then, of course, you have, uh, you look at that in terms of these four dimensions of blessings, learnings, mercies, and protection. Yes. So there, there are all these layers that you mm-hmm. use as teaching devices. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. yeah. Well, there are, one thing that I learned um, is that anywhere in the world, people are in one of five transitions, and sometimes more than one. And we could even think about all of us here, but everyone's either in a work transition. How many of us here are in a work transition? Yes. Yeah. How many of us are in a relationship transition? Okay. How many of us are in a health transition? Yeah. How many of us are in a financial transition? Okay. How many of us are in a role identity transition? <laughs> how many of us are in more than one of these transitions? Yes, right. So it's astounding to me that anywhere in the world, you know, someone is in at least one of those transitions, if not more. And uh, But ma- many people don't take time to really reflect on... The changes or the transitions that they're going through. So, questions or inquiry, I love the word question because the root word of it is quest, and every question takes us on a quest. And so, one of the questions that if there are four tracking questions, if you can track your experience, you can integrate it. But most people don't track their experience unless they're in a a wake-up call transition and then they start uh, thinking about that. So there are four questions, four tracking questions universally that you can ask anyone. And it'll be a much more interesting conversation. Uh, At the end of the day, and just take a look at yesterday for yourselves. You know, who or what inspired you yesterday? And it's important to track what inspires you because you cannot be inspired unless it has meaning. It's impossible. So if you want to know what has meaning for you, take a look at who or what inspired you this year so far. The second question, who or what has challenged you? And I love the cross-cultural definition of challenge because it's an invitation to grow or to stretch or to move beyond the knowable and the familiar. And then who or what surprised you? Uh, Wherever we're still able to be surprised, uh, uh, we have hope or we have uh, an ability to look again. Uh, we haven't become too cynical, if we can still be uh, surprised. And then who or what has touched or moved you? Uh, and those are what I call the four outer tracking tools. So just taking a look at last year, just as a whole, never go beyond more than last year, but uh, uh, but last year, who or what has inspired you, who or what challenged you or stretched you or or, uh, provided growth, where did you grow the most last year, what did you learn the most last year Uh, who or what um, surprised you last year Uh, children love surprises uh, and they often approach every day with I wonder what's going to happen next uh, and they burst into giggles or they Go <gasps> when they're surprised, but as adults we have a tendency to think, who's responsible for this? You know, how did this happen? Uh, and who or what touched and deeply moved you if indicates my heart's still open. So those four tracking tools, and there's another set of four for internal tracking. Last year, What strengthened within my nature uh, last year? What softened some of the hard prickly edges or rounded out last year for me? What opened for me last year? And what deepened or fell into place or came together for me last year? Those are internal. And this year, what's calling to be strengthened in my nature and what's calling to be softened in my nature and what's calling to be opened in my nature and what's calling to be integrated or deepened um, in my nature um,
0: so this is like the the two-headed god Janus in january that yeah. Looks back and looks forward, forward yeah. And that uh, you have to have that grounding in what has been. Yeah. What is it? Something. If you do this, uh, you have the wings to go forward. What's that beautiful quote that you have? Um, I'm not doing it well enough, but you quote somebody.
1: Uh, oh, you know, um, Robert um, Robertson, uh, Jeffers. Yeah.
0: Uh Robinson Jeffers.
1: Yeah, right. Robertson Jeffers, who says. Uh, uh, It's in February. (laughs) Isn't it January? January, yeah, yeah, January or February, yeah. It's such a, I don't want to paraphrase it because he says it so much more eloquently. Here he is. (laughs) Lend me the stone strength of the past, and I will lend you the wings of the future, for I have them. Lend me the stone strength of the past and I will lend you the wings of the future for I have them. Mm.
0: Isn't that beautiful?
1: Yeah, that's so beautiful. Yeah. His writing is so gorgeous.
0: So when you and Brother David both reach the conclusion that at the heart of all the religious and spiritual traditions is gratitude or gratefulness, as he calls it, um, do you think that's empirically the only conclusion one could arrive at as the heart issue. (laughs) No, I mean, in other words, I get it and I love gratitude because gratitude is my core response to life. I just love life. And so gratefulness and and what you and Brother David have both done for me is to recognize that, that making that a more systematic practice is you can't it's not just waking up grateful it's that you can practice gratitude in a very deep profound way. Yeah you can cultivate it you can cultivate it and there's all this stuff about gratitude for difficult situations and even if you're facing something that you can't be grateful for be grateful for the opportunities that are created and so on. Yeah. But but the question remains for me and it's a little like the Tarot question um, um, and the answer is yes I mean I can look at it (laughs) Right, I can look at it two ways. In other words, I could say that at the heart of all spiritual traditions is service. Yeah. Or I could say at the heart of all spiritual traditions uh, is um, which what you talk about, the path of uh, ascent and descent yeah. and integration. integration. Yeah. Uh, so in fact, you use many other archetypes I do. that could arguably be placed at the heart of it all Instead of gratitude. So my question to you is, do you believe that gratitude... Actually, you quote Cicero, I believe, as yes. saying that gratitude is the mother of all other virtues. Yes. Yeah. I agree. So you believe it is? it, it, it has that primacy. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah,
1: yeah I think it's... Uh, gratitude is an arm of love, and mm-hmm. um, just as joy and forgiveness are all... Mm-hmm. And recognition and acknowledgement are all arms of love, and I, I really believe that um, love is is the glue. hmm.
0: And gratitude is an expression of
1: it. Yeah, and and gratitude mm-hmm. is an expression of the generosity of heart, and uh, mm-hmm. and it's the one thing that generates mutuality.
0: In the Hindu tradition, I believe it's called Santosha. Yes. Yeah. And I believe they regard it as the the principal uh, virtue as well. Yeah. Uh, yeah,
1: it's like the container or the glue that magnetizes or holds everything else mm-hmm. together.
0: And you um, say that most people believe that they're that they're they're grateful because they are happy, but that wise people understand that they are happy because they're grateful. Yes, I would agree with that. Yeah, yeah. I've actually never trusted the word happiness as a really (laughs) good expression. No, I mean, I get get joy. Yes. And I get gratitude. But happiness always seems to me to be contingent in some way.
1: Interesting. But
0: But you don't use it that way. You use it as... In other words, you you see happiness as as a, a prime state related to gratitude that doesn't necessarily have to be contingent.
1: I put happiness. Um, happiness is like a string of pearls. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know. Next to happiness is joy and mm-hmm. satisfaction and contentment and well being.
0: No, it's kind of all strings Uh together. So I'd like to, next uh, 15 minutes before we break for lunch, open this up to some questions. And let me just say, um, we asked you all to bring lunch, but my guess is some of you didn't. So um, we will break from 12 to 1 for lunch. And so if some of you want to scoot downtown and get something at the co-op which is right behind the community center or the store you probably have time to run down get something and get back we will start again uh just about one o'clock but let's do 15 minutes of of questions and then we'll take a break so and please keep your questions thought and Ernesto I have a question this is a question relating to culture the culture that we live in now and there's really not, in my experience, there's
2: not much uh, emphasis or uh, guidance as you're growing up about being aware
0: of the synchronistic moments that happen in your life or the gifts that come in and enter your life and how they can help lead you to, closer to the essence of your being or your heart and your spirit.
2: And as I listen to you speak, you, you mentioned two very clearly that happened to you. The one about the man who asked you if you were lost in thought and then the woman who said, oh, this is just a tarot card and ripped it up. Can you speak a little bit about that sense of synchronicity and how one, at this point in time, within this culture can be aware and bring that more into people's lives, your own mind?
1: Um, I think it would be very interesting. One of the things I've always asked people is um, where have... where have they had an experience of mystery or the unexplainable in their life? Or what what was their first um, spiritual experience? And, or what was an experience that, 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 was so meaningful that opened them because everyone has that experience. It's interesting that uh, in childhood, um, in developmental stages cross-culturally, uh, uh, and, and um, that childhood is, is connected deeply to wonder, awe, and magic. And until we're told that somehow we don't go forward. Some cultures don't shut that down. Western culture has a tendency to shut that down. Uh, For the second phasing, which is adulthood, which uh, is exploring mastery. Exploring mastery is the time. And then we come to late 40s or 50s and... And we've we've done the first half of life task and we come into the phase of meaning, wanting to explore meaning. And what you're touching upon is is meaning. It's the one thing that if we don't use words like religion or spirituality, everyone in the world knows what's really meaningful to them or not, what what has meaning. And usually that goes into two very large areas. Uh, people that we love, uh, what we're currently learning about love, who've been my teachers of the heart, who who has loved me, how do I know I've been beloved. Our experiences uh, surrounding love often take us into meaning. The same around what we're drawn to as far as our own purpose or calling or vocation, uh, what has heart and meaning again about what we really want want to be doing uh, uh, in life—that is, that whether it's working with our hands, whether it's dancing, singing, building, uh, designing—you know—I love Cahil Gibran where he says, "You know, work is love made visible." It's another kind of uh, of, of love. Um, the I believe that in every decade of our life, gives us a gift, has a task, and has a challenge, but also has an important stranger.
0: Also has what?
1: An important stranger. Mm-hmm. And and even if you just take a look at the first decade of your life, as, uh, from one to 10, anywhere in the world, People can always tell you what was the gift of that decade, what was the challenge of that decade, and who were the important strangers uh, that opened you up to a hobby. It could have been a friend. It could have been uh, the little boy next door. uh, But who was the important stranger? Or who were you most uh, beloved by or loved? Then take a look at the next decade, which is 10 to 20. You know, what were the gifts from 10 to 20? What were the challenges from 10 to 20? Who were the important strangers from 10 to 20? But then take a look from 20 to 30. (laughs) What was the gift of my 20s to 30s? What was the challenge? Who were the important strangers Take a look from 30 to 40. What was the gift of that decade? What was the deep challenge or learning of that decade? And who were the important strangers that catalyzed growth or change or contributed to the unfoldment of my life? I love uh, my good friend uh, who I miss so much now, John uh, O'Donohue, uh, the poet, where... He had this two-line poem called Fluency, where he said, I would love to live my life carried by the surprise of my own unfoldment. Mm. I would love to live my life like a river, surprised by and carried by my own unfoldment. You know, so... It's the important strangers in each decade, the surprise of each decade. What was the surprise of each decade? Because there's always a surprise in each decade that colludes to my unfoldment, my unfoldment in some way. Or from 40 to 50, look what happened there. You know, What was the gift of my 40s to 50s? What was the challenge? Who were the important strangers? What did I learn about love in each decade? Uh, What am I continuing to learn about love? What happened to my unfoldment of my creativity or my service or my interests or my challenges? Or where did I first turn inward again? For those of us who were outward for a long time, where did I begin to turn inward? For those of us who were inward for a long time, where did I start turning outward? It's one of the great... Mysteries of life's journey, which is uh, the, the gift of what Joseph Campbell uh, gave to me, where he said, there's always the call, then there's the search, and then there's the struggle, and there's the breakthrough, and then there's the return. And each decade has its own call, its own search, its own struggle, its own breakthrough, and its own return. So... Think that we don't cultivate enough wonder and awe. You know, it's you know when you think about, uh, I love what Jung said, where he said, you know, life is that luminous pause between two great mysteries, which are one, birth and death. Life is that luminous mystery or pause between two great mysteries, which are one, birth and death. But I love luminous pause. Isn't that great? Luminous pause. And that suggests wonder and synchronicity and awe. And, and um, um, I love what Joseph Campbell said, you know, uh, the mystic and the psychotic <laughs> both explore... The sea of consciousness. The difference between the two is that the mystic can swim, the psychotic can't. <laughs>
2: yes. Yes. Angelique, first, I want to thank you. Your book I used as a primary guide for a number of years, and I really
1: appreciate your work. Thank you. You know, you're
2: you're presenting a view of um, <coughs> regarding the question of the mechanisms of metaphysics of divination or these things. A sense to not go there. Don't go there. You're presenting the almost like we have the fear that we'll end up like Richard Dawkins or something, and like you know have lost the awe or lost God if we yeah. if we explore if we explore these mechanisms. Um, But I want to ask, in my own experience with divination, I do know that, and I've done an enormous amount in my life, and explored synchronicity very deeply, and I also know that Jung uh, said that he couldn't figure it out, that somebody would. Uh, He left it to the future generation, so he did imply there was a mechanism. But I noticed in my own divination, the practical question is, in my own divination I've noticed that. It's not always spot on. Like there are conditions, and I know that, that make it work better. I know that.
1: Set and setting.
2: Set and <laughs> set. Yeah. So I know that the, the Crowley had a had a certain set of procedures that they would go through before proceeding with a divination. If those things didn't work out, then they wouldn't proceed. Mm -hmm. with the sense that, okay, the synchronistic factors have not, the set and setting have not been set Mm -hmm. properly. Could you uh, elaborate a little bit on, in your experience, what is that set and setting that would make, that would create the conditions for an accurate representation of our divination to actuality?
1: Well, one of the things... um, God, I've spent a lot of time uh, taking a look at uh, in the chapter that I wrote on The Way of the Visionary. Uh, Behind that probably would be another book that I could write because I spent a lot of time taking a look at the oracular traditions In different cultures. And there's not an ancient culture or a tribal culture or an indigenous culture uh, or a shamanic culture that doesn't use, whether it's cowrie shells in Africa, whether it's cards, whether it's stones, whether it's feathers, whether it's pine cones. some way of seeing, whether it's rolling the dice. Uh, My question has always been, why in all cultures of the world has this kind of ancient knowing surfaced? Ways of seeing... Honoring what we might call foresight, hindsight, insight, uh, honoring vision that looks into the un, looks into or connects with the unseen, and brings it vis- visible. And what I began to take a look at is that there's not a culture in the world that doesn't ritualize, does not ritualize the four great mysteries of life. And the four great mysteries are birth, initiation, marriage, and death. There's not a culture in the world. And so then I go to that underlying question is, okay, Why are these four great mysteries ritualized? Just like why is vision or intuitive knowing or instinctual knowing ritualized in such diverse ways? I'm just interested in that somehow that is... Back to Einstein's statement, we have forgotten what the ancients knew. There is something primal there that is a deep in our DNA as a human spirit. You know, we're called Homo sapiens sapien, which literally means the species that knows that it knows. The species that knows that it knows. And so maybe, and this is the only thing I've (laughs) come to, maybe all these methods or, you know, uh, structures are, are ways that we're trying to uncover and discover and recover that we know that we know. And maybe that we know that we know is what we call consciousness. So that's as far as I've gotten. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so we're gonna pause here,